You're listening to the Kingdom Project Podcast. These are discussions on biblical theology and interpretation. The emphasis is on context and grace. The goal is to promote biblical literacy by displacing and debunking most modern interpretations. The challenge is to engage in healthy conversation that may stretch, but sharpen iron. This is The Kingdom Project, and I'm your host, Marcus Hall. We're going to look at the topic, the biblical topic of Israel, okay? Which means you need to, you're going to have to think within the terms of the whole counsel of God, and that's it. Don't think of national physical Israel today, okay? Because that's going to be my point, that national physical Israel today is not what biblically physical national Israel was, okay? And there's more to that than just the physical location. Um, I will also state again that that this is in no way meant to be offensive whatsoever to anyone because there's more than people just here that listen to this is on online and all that. Uh, and really what I want to, what I mean is it's not anti-Semitic. People will want to say it's anti-Semitic, right? Um, in no way, shape, or form against the Jews or any other uh, race of people for that matter. All right, so uh, another thing for you to know is that when you get into this territory, okay, <laughs> and you take this position that I take, you're going to get blamed for certain things. Besides, not if it's not the anti uh, being anti-Semitic, it, it, it'll it's a false theology or a biblical worldview. Um, usually, what it, it's it's called replacement theology. All right, so I'm just I'm I want to let you guys know everything here. You know, that's what I try to do. Then you can try to figure it out if you want to go further. But if you were to bring this up and then with somebody that knows their stuff, they'll be like, no, that's called replacement theology. You're just replacing Israel with the church. Um, all right. Someone that, that disagrees are going to, they say you replace Israel with the church and then it's a false teaching. Okay. So I don't know how many of you have held up Israel in high regards and it's okay if you do that to an extent you know what I mean like it's okay to pray like we are to pray for all nations because we're to disciple all nations but I don't know how many of you were like Israel first all the time Israel first Israel first we have to bless Israel or we'll be cursed that type of thing because that gets it does get preached a lot in the west and uh, it's primarily a Western thing. <laughs> so um, so uh, I, I just want to share this, this view because there, it, so you guys know. So I want to let you know if you take, like, if you thought that or if you've heard it a lot or have been taught it, that main group of people, they're disp- dispensationalists. That's what they're called, okay? Dispensationalists. And uh, this is their interpretive system for the Bible. It's called dispensationalism, okay? Uh, It's a theological system that addresses uh, issues concerning the biblical covenants, Israel, the church, and end times. Uh, 
And it argues for a literal interpretation, um, always literal. Like, and first, I, I would say it's okay to, to go literal first and foremost, but then sometimes you're going to have to go a little deeper than that, okay? But definitely literal interpretation of Old Testament prophecies that involve ethnic slash national Israel and the ideal that the church is a New Testament entity only, all right, that is distinct from Israel is what they say, all right? So dispensationalism maintains this distinction between Israel and the church. Israel is ethnic, national entity that has roots all the way back to Abraham. The church is New Testament entity alone, and that's it, all right? You'll get some people who get so hardcore on this, and it's not just having a, a, a flag or anything like that or sending money and stuff to them. There are people who believe that you don't even have to share the gospel of Jesus to Jews because they're already there. They're already saved. They're already because they're God's people, right? Now, we've seen this before so many times. It's not about your ethnicity. It's not that you were children of Abraham, right? It's, and we'll get into that. There's a lot of stuff here. This is not meant to be exhaustive, but anyway, uh, they believe the church did not exist in the Old Testament. They believe it's a New Testament organism that's linked with the arrival of Jesus and the baptizing ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, while God has always had a people from ancient times, it's Jesus and the Holy Spirit's ministry that ushers in this era of what they say is the church, even though the word church in the Bible or body, uh, oh, it's church is ecclesia, and you can find it multiple times in the Old Testament, <laughs> but they say church is a New Testament idea only. Well, I mean, what do you call all the people from in the Old Testament the whole time, right? So th th they say these are New Testament realities, not Old Testament realities. They also affirm that all spiritual, physical, and national promises that are contained in the covenants of, of promise must be fulfilled literally, okay? Have to be fulfilled literally, and that includes promises concerning Israel, the nations, the land, and some promises were fulfilled with Jesus' earthly ministry while others await his second coming. So not only must spiritual blessings occur, such as like salvation, forgiveness of sins, um, the Jew-Gentile unity, and the indwelling Holy Spirit, but physical promises involving the land, right? They have to go back to their land. They got to have their land, culture, agriculture, all this must be fulfilled in a literal type of way, right? So they say Israel became, came back together, came a nation again in 1948 and all that stuff, and that was fulfilling prophecy. So... Uh, all of this, though, all of this, this dispensational theology, it, and they'll, they'll argue, I, I, I discuss this with these people all the time. <laughs> and it's not that they're not bad people, they're fine, okay? But they, they will automatic. they usually go, it doesn't take very long for them to want to hit below the belt. Uh, <laughs> and then they're like, I don't know what Bible you're reading, is what they, you know, what Bible you're, you know, and... You ought to ask for your money back if you went to school and stuff like that. And they start to insult really fast. But, you know, they're good people. But um, 
and they'll deny this and they'll argue, but this system of teaching is linked to John Nelson Darby, okay, who he popularized uh, the whole teaching of the rapture as well. This theo theological system is less than 200 years old, all right? It's like 171, something like that. That's it. You're not going to find this stuff in the first 1700, 1800 years of church history. You may find a little tidbits here and there, but this whole theological system, you're not going to find it until uh, after 1850. All right, so we're going to look, our main text will be in Romans 9, and then I'll be all over the place, okay? So, but there's this great section that's in Romans where Paul goes in this defense, this very great defense of God, and it's Romans 9, 10, 11. Now, Romans 9 specifically really is about God's sovereignty. It's a very hard chapter. There's a lot of people who don't like that chapter at all because, uh, uh, you know, for a lot of reasons. We're not going there today, though. Uh, but they don't, a lot of people don't want to hear that, and they want to sort of beat around the bush and make uh, up uh, different reasons for what, what, what Paul's saying there. But today, we want to deal with this other issue, and it comes before that, okay? But he is he, he lays out... The first in the first seven texts or, or verses here, and, and then goes into God's sovereignty. Okay, so we're going to deal with that, and because he's dealing with promises that God made to Israel. Okay, so Romans nine, I'm going to read one through seven, and he says, "I am speaking the truth in Christ; I am not lying. My conscience bears uh, me witness in the Holy Spirit." That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. All right. So there's a lot going on there. But the big statements there are for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel, right? So if you know your Old Testament, then you know that God revealed himself to Israel. And it was to them that the, the, they received the Messianic promises. And indeed, they were a chosen people, God's chosen people. There was a covenant which had curses and blessings between them. All right. So in Amos 3, 1 and 2, it says, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt, you only uh, have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. So with a covenant that has great blessings or privileges also comes these uh, uh, responsibilities or consequences, right? 
Israel became proud. We know this. If you go through all, you've, you've heard enough probably over the years, if you've not read everything in the Old Testament, that they were uh, always, a, it was a roller coaster ride with them, right? And their faith and, and their obedience to God. They became proud. They missed the true uh, end of, of all they had, which was really the, the incarnation, the coming of Christ to atone for their sins. So in the first couple of verses of, of Romans 9, Paul's expressing his sorrow for his people, his countrymen, and his readiness to suffer for them. He says, for I could, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Right? He's implying by this, they're no longer people of God when he says this. You can't just be... You can't just be okay because you have Father Abraham. He's saying Israel is no longer blessed. They were, in fact, now under the curse of their covenant. He says he wished he could take that curse from them or for them. A lot today, a lot today, they don't even go on and read for they are Israelites, but they take this text today. They apply it to all humanity. How many times have you guys heard that Paul would give up his salvation for the whole world to be saved? Right. But he was talking about the Israelites. It's not what he's saying in the context. He's about the kinsmen according to his flesh. He wished Israel could be saved. If God's chosen people were now cursed or under that and they were going to about to feel the wrath or the judgment of that curse, then had, gone, had God gone back on his promises? And that's what Paul wants to address. Has he rejected these chosen people? Was Israel really cursed? You have to look at what Jesus has had to say about the nation of Israel. In Matthew 21, in 18 and 19, it says that in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he, Jesus, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. He curses this fig tree, right? The fig tree was a symbol for the nation of Israel. Okay. It's a figure for the nation Israel. Throughout Israel's history, God hungered for his people to bring forth fruit, right? The gospel writers spoke of the physical hunger of Jesus as, a sim as symbolic of God's hunger for obedience or the uh, hunger for fruit from his people. Jesus pronounces a curse on Israel because of their failure to bear fruit and their ultimate rejection of him. In most of the parables that Jesus gave concern Israel's rejection and their destruction that was coming if one was going to, to read and interpret it all within in its context. Right after the cursing of the fig tree is the parable of the vineyard, right? And the vineyard being Israel and them rejecting Jesus is in which Jesus proclaims at the end of that parable that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruits. And he said, it's going to be taken away from you. From, from that point on, he goes into pronouncing the woes to them, the woe, all the woes, and then the destruction of the temple and the city and all this, okay? 
So this was a people that was not obedient. They were an adulterous nation. They're not producing a fruit that God was looking for. And according to Isaiah in chapter 5, 7, it was justice and righteousness that he was looking for. In biblical usage, righteousness is rooted in covenants and relationships. All right. For biblical authors, righteousness is the fulfillment uh, of the terms of a covenant between God and humanity or between humans in the full range of their relationships. The one who in faith gives himself to the doing of God's will is righteous. All right. So the parables teach that Israel lost its privileged position. And in light of all this, the question is, has God's plan changed then? Is Israel's rejection as a nation a going back on his word? Right? That's, has God broken his promises? So there's, there's two con possible conclusions that could be drawn. Either the gospel that Paul is preaching is false, right? Or uh, else, if it is true, the promises of God to Israel have failed. That's how they're seeing it. That the Messiah and the blessing to Israel, uh, they were inseparably connected, okay? So the Jew would say, well, then either Jesus is not the true Messiah, and he cursed and rejected God's people, or the word of God is proven false. So God's justice and righteousness is being called into question, and that's what Paul's defending. He's going to show his readers, which was the first century Roman believers and us today, that that Israel's rejection is not inconsistent with the promises of God. To say that the nation is accursed is not to say that God's promises have failed. Right? But it, it, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, he says. In other words, the word of God has not stumbled in a similar way as Israel has when she rejected Christ, her Messiah. The complete, uh, the complete Jewish Bible says that, uh, puts it this way, but the present condition of Israel does not mean that the word of God has failed, for not everyone from Israel is truly part of Israel. So the word of God means anything which God has spoken. And here, from uh, the connection, it should be understood in a spe more specific sense. It's the word of promise in the covenants alluded to in verse 4. So it refers to the promises that God had made to Abraham, then Isaac, Jacob, and offer, uh, conferring blessing upon their seed. So this whole, this whole problem of whether God is being faithful to his covenant with Israel uh, in the work of Christ is what Paul deals with Romans 9, 10, and 11. Israel's lack of faith on the part of, of some, right? It does not mean then that God's promises that were entrusted to them have failed. So if God's promises have not gone off course, then how could Israel be accursed, right? When God made so many promises to them. Well, Paul explains it. He's going to explain it, but you guys missed it. You misunderstood it. And we see this many times from Paul. We've gone through these before in Ephesians and Galatians, right? Time and time again, he's explaining what it means to be a true Jew. 
So for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. This is a key to understanding who uh, Israel is in the promises of God. And the first question then is who or what is Israel? What does Israel mean? And it means God rules or he who rules with God. And I asked you guys last week if you wanted the challenge to find the first uh, time Israel was used in Scripture. <laughs> and I'm not going to ask if you did. It's okay. You all pass. But it is in Genesis 32, 28. And it says, Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have uh, striven with God and with men, and have prevailed, all right? So it wasn't given to a whole group of people or given to a land or given to them. It was given to a man named Jacob, right? Jacob is Israel. Jacob marries two sisters, right? Leah and Rachel with these two women and their maids come these 12 sons. The 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jacob's 12 sons are called the house of Israel. And it's a term that refers to all the 12 tribes, the nation, Israel. So Israel, Jacob's sons, were delivered from uh, that, that bondage in Egypt, right? They become a nation at Mount Sinai when God gives them the law. The Ten Commandments, right, is what everyone is going to picture. This is where they enter into covenant, right? <clears throat> And they are now called the house of Israel in Exodus 40, 38. So the term Israel came to be used of the nation that God had called out of Egypt. But Paul seems to be saying here, there's two Israels. We know of the one, right? That this national physical Israel then is Jacob's sons. So that's physical Israel. And it seems there's true Israel because Paul's saying that God's promises haven't failed because God never promised unconditionally to each and every single offspring of Abraham those covenant blessings. God never intended that all of the nation would be a, like a Christian nation, right? And all the nation would be redeemed. But within this group of people, there would be this remnant, right? A remnant of true Israel or spiritual Israel. So one could be a physical Israelite without truly being a true Israelite. So the promises were always to true Israel, not this whole, this actual physical location or this nation called Israel. So then who's Israel? Who's true Israel? Who is spiritual Israel, right? Is it the church? Yeah. But what's the church? It's the body of Christ, right? And what I want us to understand is that Jesus, then, if he's, if he's the head of the body, Jesus is true Israel. Jesus is Israel, okay? It is in him and him alone that the promises of God are fulfilled, right? So you could take that that verse and say they are not they are not all in Christ who are physical descendants of Jacob. We're going to look at some messianic passages in Isaiah. 
All right, Isaiah, I'll just read the. You don't have to turn there, but you can write them down if you need to look them up later or ask me for them. Isaiah 41, 8, 9, it says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, when I have chosen the the offspring, uh, whom I have chosen, sorry, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Okay, this is a, a, a messianic passage. Jesus here is the servant. The same promise is made again in the next chapter in 42.1 when it says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Okay, again, another passage, a messianic passage about Jesus. Messiah, the servant, is portrayed as the one who acts in God's name to bring him glory and deliver his people and to be a light to the Gentiles. 42.6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will keep you as a covenant uh, for the people, a light for the nations. And then in 49, again in 49.6, he says, it is, too, uh, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to rise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved, uh, yeah, bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. All right, again, this shows us the servant Israel was going to bring true Israel back to God and extends God's salvation to the ends of the earth. But notice what the disciples ask Jesus after the resurrection, Acts 1.6. When they come together, they asked him, Lord, will you, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Right? They saw Christ as the servant. They saw him as Israel. So the dispensationalists are going to hold to that literal interpretation. And I will note that often you should first and foremost just go literally, okay? However, we have to, un- have, to have an understanding of the whole context of the Bible, right? Understanding the whole Bible in order to connect these things. Many of these things that the authors of the New Testament do. So when you don't do that you're bound to interpret these texts literally. And then you're going to assign the fulfillment of these prophecies of Isaiah to a a future earthly millennium in which Israel coexists with Gentiles under the reign of Davidic king and, and a temple and blood and sacrifices and all these things, right? But as I said, it's not how the New Testament interprets them. And since the authors were writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's God then, right? It's God that interprets the prophecies from Isaiah as fulfilled in the messianic mission of Jesus. And plus numerous other texts. You look at Matthew and Matthew was writing to Jews in Matthew 12, 15 and 18. It says, Jesus, aware of this, he withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. 
Matthew quotes Isaiah 42.1. And he tells us, he just told us that Jesus fulfilled what had been spoken there in Isaiah, right, about the servant. So according to Matthew, the servant of the Lord was not physical Israel. It's Jesus. And this happens time and time and time again. So in Acts 3 and 13, Luke speaks of Jesus as the servant of God. And then there's just all these things. And then you look at this. Hosea 11.1, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Right? Obviously thinking, bondage, bring it, you know, let my people go, bringing them out of that, Right? When, we stu- when you study that in the, that book of Hosea, we know it's referring to the exodus out of Egypt, right? But in Matthew 2.15, Matthew tells us that that becomes fulfilled when Jesus' parents took him to Egypt to protect him from Herod's slaughter of the, the male babies, right? Matthew 2.14.15, And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So Matthew takes the passage from Hosea, which clearly refers to Israel, and he tells his readers that the passage is now fulfilled in Christ. And he does this to prove to his the Jewish audience that Jesus is the servant of the Lord, foretold throughout the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is true Israel. He's the true seed of Abraham. And this is the, the point uh, Paul is making in Galatians that we've gone through when he says, now the promises were made to Abraham. Uh, they were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Okay, I'm almost done. <laughs> it's looking at me intensely. <clears throat> you just focused. So it, it just so happens that the servant that we've already looked at, the servant is called the descendant of Abraham. Isaiah 41.8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham... The Abrahamic covenant was a promise that was made to Abraham and to Jesus, the seed of Abraham, that he would be made great, that he would be the father of many nations, and that in him uh, would all the nations of the earth be blessed. So this is fulfilled spiritually, ultimately in Jesus. All right? So while this is not at all exhaustive, Not at all. I mean, I can't do it, you know. It should at least give you a good start or a primer to see the the point that's being made here. That Jesus is true Israel. That he received the promises of God that were passed down from the fathers. He's the second or the last Adam. Obeying in every place where the first Adam failed. He was true Israel, obeying where old covenant Israel failed to obey. And we see this in his temptation in the wilderness. All right. So where nation uh, or national Israel failed, Christ obeyed. 
In every way that Israel proved to be the unrighteous son, Jesus proved that he was the righteous son. What Paul preached does not speak against the promises of God. Israel is God's people by faith. It's always been that way. Always by faith and faith alone. That was it. It's always by faith. And now all who believe in Christ receive the promises that God made to Israel. The church, it's those of us who have trust in Christ through faith are the Israel of God. Believers and only believers then are true Jews. So to understand that God keeps his covenant promises, you must understand that not all Israel is actually really Israel. That's some physical place or nation. Later in Romans, Paul, uh, in Romans 9, Paul quotes from Isaiah in 27. It says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Uh, so you take, you, uh, that's Isaiah 10, 22. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness. So the promises were never to all of this physical national location or group of people, but to a remnant that was within them. And, and that was, that could, that, that's what comp, or comprised, <laughs> comprised the, the church, the first century church. The first Christians were all Jews. And then it went to the Jews and then went to the Gentiles. The remnant there and that was saved. So all, all of this here, this totally combats this dispensational theology, I think. But it's not a replacement at all because it was always about Jesus. It was always about Jesus. It was always types and shadows pointing to something better and greater. Not a physical group of people. Right? So for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, the purpose of that, this distinction, is to show that the covenant promises of God did, did not have respect to Israel after just the flesh, right? But to their faith, true Israel. Jesus, the Christ, and all who trust in him, all right? So the unbelief and rejection of, of ethnic Israel as a whole it is no way uh, interfered with with the fulfillment of God's covenant promise or, or purpose. God is faithful. He is just. He is righteous. If he makes a promise, it's sure. We can count on his word, but we have to make sure to understand the word and not misinterpret it because God's word hasn't failed. It never will. And it didn't then. And, and the, the curse of his judgment did come on them via the Roman Empire when they were invaded and destroyed in 70 AD.